Hey everybody, this is Ray Felsch, and this is episode two of Have Not Seen This. A weekly in-depth look at a much-beloved movie selected specifically by our guest that they're a little surprised when they find out that people have not seen. Have you ever uh, encountered a movie or a TV show that just resonated with you and you immediately wanted to run out and tell everybody about it? I had that happen this week with Black Mirror. Now, I'm not new to the Black Mirror bandwagon. I've seen most of the episodes. In fact, when I was with Gruesome Magazine, we recorded a podcast about the fourth season, I believe. But uh, I just sat down the other night and watched one of the season five episodes, and it immediately surprised me with how powerful I felt like it was. So I encourage you, if you have an hour and you have access to Netflix, go sit down and watch the second episode of season five, Smithereens. It is phenomenal. And the nice thing about Black Mirror being an anthology series is you can just jump in to any episode at any point. You don't have to have seen anything prior to it. You can just jump in. But the show is usually uh, thought-provoking and and poignant, but it's also usually higher on the science fiction concept. But Smithereens is very contemporary. It's very much today and now, and it has a message that everybody needs to hear. I highly recommend you go check it out. Let's get to this week's episode. Uh, Joining me this week is Thomas Mariani, another name that should be familiar to listeners of the past podcast. Thomas actually talks on this week's episode of his podcast, Double Edged Double Bill, about how he found the Weekly Blend audio show and ended up joining in, and how, in some ways, this was responsible for him starting podcasting. And if I can take just a little bit of credit for his foray into podcasting, I'm incredibly happy to do so. Thomas joined us later in the show's life, and unfortunately he doesn't live near me, so he was always joining us via Skype. And I didn't quite know at the time how to deal with that because the show's dynamic was people in the studio riffing off of each other. And so my inexperience probably cost the show a great asset in utilizing Thomas. And it's kind of ironic now that I'm doing a show that is almost all distance interviews, because if I had known how to handle that better then, then I probably could have kept the show going with Thomas's help long past its eventual decline. Thomas now has his own podcast, uh, Double Edge, Double Bill, where they take a look at two movies each week in a specific subject, one good one and one bad one. And uh, so it's not too different from the concept of this show, other than that's two movies and this is an in-depth look at one movie. And Thomas really surprised me with his choice. As I was lining up the original slate of guests for this show, Uh, Most of them were picking genre movies, uh, like last week's Alien. And Thomas chose Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story from 2007, which is most noticeably not a genre picture. It is a comedy. And at the time that it came out, I didn't give it much thought because it was a kind of sophomoric comedy, which I tend not to be as interested in. Watching this one really opened my eyes as to what I had missed in that, as well as making me realize I need to give more contemporary comedies a better shake. 
Uh, I don't see enough of them, probably because I see a lot of movies by myself, and comedies aren't as much fun to go see alone, because you don't have someone to kind of look at in between the jokes and, and laugh and interact with. But I'm really glad that I saw this one, and I'm really happy about Thomas and I's conversation about it. So here we go with episode two of Have Not Seen This, Walk Hard, The Dewey Cox Story. So how was Atlanta? Lots of fun. Um, Admittingly, it was more crowded than usual. I don't know if you saw that they broke their attendance record. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, it was, uh, it got pretty bad, even more than usual after a certain point. So like Friday and Saturday, I was doing the usual, like going around all over the con. Then Sunday night, it was just like, man, I just want to hang out with the people I stay with and have been chauffeuring me just because it's too many fucking people (laughs) at a certain point. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Now you did panels on Good Omens. Yes. And, uh, God, what was, what's the vampire series? What We Do in the Shadows. What We Do in the Shadows, right. I, I only caught one episode of that before I cut cable, and man, I laughed my ass off. It's great, yeah. I'm I'm really jealous. I didn't think to to, to kind of take the approach that you've taken. Like, I went, the, the I started going to Dragon Con as just a fan, just, just going and, and having fun. And then the last couple of years when I was doing the podcast, I went as press. But I yeah. never thought, oh, well, I could you know, talk on a panel. Well, mainly the reason I was able to get into that was just that somebody who, uh, like listened to the old horror news show really liked us and was just like, Hey, you want to come to Atlanta? And that's how I kind of got on that train. And even after I left, they're still just like, yeah, you can come. It's cool. I'm still, I'm jealous. Cause I, it just never dawned on me that I could try that approach. Maybe, maybe if I go back, although if I go back, it'll probably just be as a, as a fan, as a regular person. <laughs> I mean, if you do, we'll hang. It's cool. Yeah, it used to be really bad for the school schedule when they moved it because it originally it was Fourth of July weekend when I first started oh. going. Okay. And when they when they moved it to Labor Day and I was teaching, our school year always started before Labor Day, so there was no way I could get a long weekend for Labor Day to go. So that kind of killed yeah, it yeah, for yeah. me. But now I'm not I'm not held back by that anymore. So I could I could it dawned on me like a week before I was like, well, damn it, I could go. You know, there's no hotels available and I'd be crazy, but I could go. <laughs> yeah, that's why I stay with friends, because like the only thing I have to pay for is transportation and liquor. I mean, there's yeah. food, but mostly liquor. Yeah, the last few times I went, I ended up staying like in an outlying area and just riding the Marta. Yeah, which is a lot of fun, especially like I think not the last year I went, but I think like the next to last year I went riding on the marta and seeing people get on who are obviously going to dragon con because they're all dressed up and yeah. then there was a, and then there was a salvation army convention going on at the same time mm-hmm. so you had a bunch of people in salvation army uniforms on the marta <laughs> right <laughs> so it was kind of cool to see yeah um I, i'm i'm impressed by your uh choice of costume as well i never pick it out the first time i look at your pictures i'll see who you're with and then I'll look at your pictures later and go, oh, dude's in costume. Well, yeah, the Steven Universe thing, because it's the easiest costume for Fat Dude to do, yeah. <laughs> I'm one of 50 Steven Universes, yeah. Oh, are you really? Oh, yeah, there's so many of those. See, to me, it just fits perfectly because of, like, just your hair and your glasses, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love going around with the, especially since I got the cheeseburger backpack and people just, like, scream at me, cheeseburger backpack. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm not that in deep into Steven Universe. I watch, no. <laughs> I, watch, I, I watch some of it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a ton, though. Um, well, let's talk about your, your choice. 
and here. Oh, yeah, we're actually I- recording. Like, we're actually this is part of the show. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, okay. Fine. I didn't know this is part of the show. I thought we were just having fun, man. And now you're doing this. Oh, thought- well, you know. <laughs> throw throw in a, a little a little banter at the beginning. It's it's fun. Of course. Mr. Cox. Mr. Cox. Give him a minute, son. Dewey Cox needs to think about his entire life before he plays. From the time he was a boy. Ain't no six-year-old understand the true meaning of the blues. I reckon I might. The music of Dewey Cox Take my hand has had an effect on people. It's the devil's music. From the guy who brought you Talladega Nights and Superbad. You've got to give up this dream. You're never going to make it. And maybe you don't believe in me after all. I do believe in you. I just know you're going to fail. Columbia Pictures presents The Epic Journey. Walking to the top of a mountain ain't easy. It's a long, hard walk. But I will walk hard. Of the man who became a legend. Walk hard. The Beatles want to hang out, so I'm going to go do that. With meditation, there's no limit to what we can imagine. This Christmas... I'm leaving you! You can take the children, but you leave me, my monkey. When it comes to music... I ain't good enough to follow Elvis. There's two things you need to know. I'm the king, and number two is... Look out, man! You see how close I came to your head? I can chop a man in half. I'm guilty as John! No legend is bigger than Cox. Give up my new wife, Cheryl Cox T. Thanks, buddy Holly. What do you think, George Harrison? The one, the only, Dewey Cox. Well, thank you, Eddie Vader. Walk hard. What happened to you, Dewey? I don't know, but I know what happened to you. Patrick Deppy took a beating. Walk hard. My life has been blessed, from my singing to my family to my sausage. It doesn't say Cox unless I say it tastes like Cox. Before we actually start discussing the movie, though, I I need your input on a really important topic, which is, is it biopic or biopic? I used to pronounce it biopic. Well, biopic when I was a kid, when I was younger, when I first learned the word. But I've been going with biopic since. Okay. All right. Well, we'll we'll try and go with biopic, but I usually... I, I, now Bro, I'm, I'm aware. I'm a I'm a big Ray fan far back, so I'm aware. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I don't even remember how I pronounce it now. I'm thinking about it too much, but uh, okay. So uh, all right. So I have not seen this movie before. Yes. How do you? Well, before this, yes, but for, for <laughs> you the, haven't for seen the, the movie, right? That's gonna be awkward for the show. <laughs> <laughs> for the point, uh, I gotta find a better way to phrase this first question. Margaret gave me hell over it as well. Uh, pretend I have not seen this movie. <laughs> yes. How, how do you describe it to me? How do you how do you sell it to me? Um, it is the best modern spoof that I've seen in at least like the last since the new millennium. Honestly, that skewers biopics in a way that um, I think they deserve more slander than they necessarily get, especially as of recent. It's a big thing about why ever since I'd say about a year ago, I went from just loving this movie consistently to thinking it is honestly quite important for cinema in a way that like it should have had more impact because certain other things become super successful in a way that I think is detrimental. Uh, What do you mean? Um, I mean, this is my 
fancy way of saying fuck Bohemian Rhapsody. And if this movie was <laughs> successful enough, it would have completely skewered that movie from ever being as successful as it was. I just think like this should have been the airplane for this entire genre. It really should have, where it was so successful that it ruined at least the chance of like those particular in airplanes case, it was disaster movies of the seventies. Um, and in this case, it should have been biopics where any like really super lazy attempt should have just been completely skewered as what it is, which is the walk hard movie, which I saw reviews do for Bohemian Rhapsody, but that still didn't stop it from making like $500 million when it came out. Right. Right. Yeah, I read a uh, – doing the research on this and, and reading what people had said and that kind of stuff, one of them was talking about how this movie essentially killed the modern musical biopic for over a decade and that it appeared that the creators of Bohemian Rhapsody hadn't seen Walk Hard because they still made the same mistakes that this movie points out. It is out. literally Walk Hard without jokes. It's baffling, that fucking movie. For a lot of yeah, I have to admit. I have to admit I have not seen Bohemian Rhapsody yet because there was for, – for a multitude of reasons. I, I have access to it, but I just uh, haven't bit the bullet to watch it yet. I watched it in a sing-along at an Alamo draft house, which was the worst way to probably see it because it's a bunch of people who are excited to sing Queen songs and that movie constantly cock-teases about Queen songs with how awkward the editing is for most of it. Where, like, there's a whole point where they do Killer Queen and they cut certain bits. So people are just like, she's a. Oh. Okay. <laughs> we're just blessing that part. Yeah, I. That, that's one of my issues behind seeing it is, you know, when every single review mentions how bad the editing is and then it's given the Academy Award for yes. editing, there's an issue. And I know a lot of people say they felt like it got the editing award because it was recognition of the fact that the editor is the reason there's a movie. In that case at all, since, you know, Singer was removed from the project or left the project or whatever. But still, it's like, come on. Yeah, yeah. No, who are you talking about? Because they, they never mentioned any of those acceptance speeches about any Singer person. No, uh, are, are you this right. serious director who doesn't exist, Rafe? Like, come on. <laughs> uh, all right. So I know how you feel about Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> Before we get into this too far, how, how do you feel about um, Walk the Line or Ray? Um, I mean, I remember when I, because I saw Walk the Line and Ray around the time that came out, I remember thinking Ray was extremely long, and that's most of my memory of it. <laughs> it's just, it's like a two and a half hour fucking movie, and it's endless. And Walk the Line is at least more enjoyable, I think it's because of Reese Witherspoon and Walking Phoenix, but otherwise it is such a very base level biopic, which is not a terrible thing necessarily, but it really also opened the door for a bunch of other ones that would come out and do such a pretty mediocre to worse job afterward. All right, I'll get I'll get into my thoughts on those in a minute. But so, all the movies in the world you have to pick from. Why why is this your pick for this for this episode? Why why Walt? Well, Hart? because I think a lot of people haven't seen it, Rafe. Um, because this wasn't a big hit when it came out. Uh, made twenty million dollars off a thirty five million dollar budget. Because uh, they released it in December. Because they think, oh, it'll be right around the time of like all these biopic Oscar releases that are coming out but they ended up really burying it. And this was an interesting time too, because I sort of came of age around like the rise of Judd Apatow. Um, Cause I, I mean, I remember like loving 40 year old virgin, sneaking that DVD, watching with my younger sisters, all of us laughing at Seth Rogen, talking about um, <laughs> Steve Carell, fucking um, the grandmother 
character technically like it's just like <laughs> oh she'll mail you a check for twelve dollars afterward like i i remember like loving like at least really like globbing onto those movies at the time that they came out i haven't revisited those in a while i wouldn't be surprised if most of them didn't hold up very well but i feel like this is the one that really does because it almost feels timeless just because it is far more of a traditional spoof it's far more of um, kind of like a naked gun sort of thing, but for this particular genre of the biopics. And I think it's also just that, like, unlike those Avatar movies that are all just improvised, this feels clearly like it is obviously very scripted, but perfect bits of improvisation that just come in and out. Because you have great improvisers all around, like, especially the other members of um, John C. Riley's band, where you got Matt Besser, Tim oh. Meadows, and Chris Parnell are phenomenal. And this was also one that introduced me to a lot of those comedic personas, especially uh, Besser. Like, that's how I got into, like, UCB and all those other, like, sort of, like, underground comedy things was through, like, this movie, honestly. Which is, and because everyone's in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of jumped over introducing it, but yeah, we're talking about Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story from 2007, directed by Jake Kasdan, written by Judd Apatow and Jake Kasdan, starring... John C. Riley and every comedic actor on earth at the time, except for oddly, uh, Will Ferrell and uh, Seth uh, Rogen. Yeah, the two of them are notably absent, but anybody else who's involved in comedy at the time, they're in here. Yes. So I had not seen this when you picked right. it out. And uh, I thought it was a very bizarre choice, but I, but I loved it for that reason. Uh, and watching it, I, I, first I was a little offended by it because I really liked Walk the Line. And I, it's not, I saw that in the theater and I fell in love with it and I've seen it numerous times since then. And I still think it's a really good movie. I think it's, it's well assembled. Uh, so this was a hard sell for me, but as it kept going and I, I was laughing quite a bit at it. And then after I finished watching it and had some time to digest it, I realized just how brilliant a comedy this is, yeah. how archetypal the modern musician biopic has become and and this really points out all the tropes and all the foibles and you know having read a lot of interviews with the filmmakers they talk about you know we get why these tropes exist you know you've got two hours to tell a story that spans over 30 40 years every time that door opens it's going to be someone important because we don't have time to shove in anything extraneous <laughs> but that doesn't but that doesn't mean that it can't be done better. <laughs> right. And that they have the, the one of the best running gags in this whole movie is the fact that whenever there is somebody from history that comes in, they have to say their full name. Just like, oh, like right. fucking like Frankie Muniz comes in his buddy Holly. Just like, oh, come on, dude, Cox, you're going to do great. I don't know, buddy Holly. I don't know if I can go out there. <laughs> and I and to me, that culminates in the scene with the Beatles where he's referring to them not only by their name, but also of the Beatles. <laughs> Like, we don't know. It's George Harrison of the Beatles. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I mean, Frankie Muniz is Buddy Holly. Um, uh, just going down the list here a little bit. Jack Black, Justin Long, Jason Schwartzman, Paul Rudd as the Beatles, which is like, how on earth did they come up with that casting? You have appearances by real musicians in here from Honey Boy Edwards in one of the first scenes to uh jewel i love it jackson brown towards the end i mean they, they got a, a what i love about the ending though is that you didn't mention it, like they're all singing walk hard at a tribute thing and who comes out to help them but Ghostface killer <laughs> like three people that make sense right. and then Ghostface killer which is another great cat. i i left him out because you know as a middle-aged white man i have trouble pronouncing his name <laughs> Ghostface face kill i mean it's quite simple right? yeah i 
I sound so white saying it. That doesn't stop me, Rafe. That does not stop me at all. <laughs> so I, I, the more I think about this movie and the more I've, I've read other research uh, about it and about the intent behind it, uh, it really is a really good pick. And I also realized I don't give enough contemporary comedies enough of a chance and I need to, to well, I that. think it's also just a problem of like, cause I usually, when I bring this movie up, a lot of people tend to say like, Oh, that one, like around the time, because most people were into like, Oh, but it's not like super bad. It's not like knocked up. It's not like some of these other ones that were so successful. And I think that's honestly why it's lasted so long. I mean, I still, like I said, like a lot of those movies, like, I think super bad is still quite good despite some of its like dated issues amongst other things. But I think, Walk Hard is the one that feels sort of like timeless because it doesn't stick to that endlessly over-edited kind of thing. Or even like I love the unrated version isn't just, oh, it's unrated. It's the super self-indulgent director's cut. <laughs> like they just titled it that just to like fully embrace it. Like we are skewering every step of this, even the home video release. <laughs> well, as you said, it didn't do very well at the box office at the time that it came out. It, it bombed. But it has a, a 74% review at uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes and a 63% at Metacritic. So the, the critics have, have come uh, come to like it or liked it from the get-go. Although the, the two reviews that I picked offer almost differing opinions on the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the great Roger Ebert, I didn't think he'd be able to review this, but yeah, he was still around in 2007. Roger Ebert said the movie directed by Jake Kasdan, co-written by Kasdan and the productive Judd Apatow, and they do an interesting thing. Instead of sending everything over the top at high energy like Top Secret or Airplane, they allow Riley to more or less actually play the character. So that against all expectations. Some scenes actually approach real sentiment. Riley is required to walk a tightrope. Is he suffering or kidding suffering or kidding suffering about suffering? That we're not sure adds to the appeal. On the flip side, Peter Bradshaw of The Guardian writes, Apatow and director slash co-writer Jake Kasdan skewer the cliches vaguely in the manner of a veteran movie satirist, Jim Abrams and David Zucker, creators of Airplane and the Naked Gun. But Abrams and Zucker would have offered the moviegoer far more value in terms of joke density. They would squeeze in a dozen funny lines, allusions, and sight gags where Apatow and Kasdan only manage about one or two. Some laughs, but you expect more from Apatow. I thought that was interesting that they're on opposite sides of the same issue. Is there enough joke density in here or is it cool that they let Riley play the character and actually have some emotion here? I mean, I think Ebert really summed it up beautifully because I think that's the key to like so many of those spoof movies, like the Zucker, Abram Zucker movies were so great because they got super serious actors to do the silliest things because Leslie Nielsen before he did that was much more of a serious actor like Star Forbidden Planet and he was the captain of the Zion adventure just like a very serious character actor and then you get that very serious character actor to say things like of course not don't call me Shirley that's phenomenal that's so hilarious and I think John C. Riley, who's a guy that comes from like he has done obviously a lot of comedy stuff even before he got in the Will Ferrell phase which is around this time with like Talladega Nights was the year before this so he was like kind of coming there even in Boogie Nights he's so hilarious but at the same time he's also able to do like a Magnolia or Chicago get nominated for best supporting actor thing where he's so dedicated to it that he's sort of the rock that makes this movie work so well and also like even like the joke density thing, I think they spend more of that on just like the production design and the actual like cinematography and all this other stuff, making it look so authentically like these movies that it makes the jokes so much funnier. I think it's it doesn't have like a bunch of background gags, but it sells the one joke even more 
by doing it that way. Yeah, and, and you bring up the whole partnering up with Will Ferrell, and I think that was another strike this movie had against it for me at the time that it came out, is I was not a fan of that partnership. Um, I, I, I like Will Ferrell, but some of his comedies just aren't for me. And, you know, like Talladega Nights, which is with Riley, uh, just uh, that didn't work for me. So why would I then go see a movie starring Riley? And uh, apparently I was wrong to miss this one because it's, it's quite good. Goddamn right. You were wrong. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I just, I, I think it's also, I agree with you. Honestly, I think I liked Talladega Nights at the time. I don't think it holds up very well. I was never a fan of Step Brothers, And that's the one that came out like a year after this. And, Every one of like people around my age loved quoting. They loved like oh balls on the base and all this other shit. That I'm just like I, it's so loose and it has no fucking value. Like there's a f- couple of funny bits in that movie, but it's just is like so laboring. I suppose like this one has so much dedication, so much craft, and doesn't have like the linearama shtick that Judd Apatow usually loves doing, and. It suffered for it, and I think it's just like it was trying to do something interesting and different against the grain, which I think is all because of Jake Kasdan, who, if you've never seen any of his other stuff, there's like um, less, um, less than zero, which is a great underrated movie, or right. um, even, but as of recent, has actually gotten like a bit more acclaim with uh, the Jumanji sequel, which I think it's it's nice to see that oh. he's finally gotten like some kind of acclaim or at least like big box office success around this town yeah i i really enjoyed uh, welcome to the jungle and i'm actually looking forward to the next yeah. level so I, I really was afraid that the, the one of the first lines if not the first audible line in this uh as uh the stage manager looking for dewey cox for the the, the the performance that's getting ready to happen and he his first line is guys i need cox and my my first thing was how many dick jokes is this going to lead to and I was surprised at how uh, restrained they actually were in that area. It wasn't until way late in the movie when there's a comment about uh, Cox and Little Nutcrack, n- Nutsack, what a, what a package. And I was like, oh, th- that's right. There could have been dick jokes here, and they didn't do well, I them. mean, they, it's like they had a couple of like audible ones, and it's just like, wait, we're going to save a, for a visual joke, which they emphasize fully on, which I think that's the thing is they, I, I agree that that point, like I was initially worried when I first saw this. And mainly it's interesting now because that's Nat Faxon, future Academy Award-winning screenwriter for The Descendants, <laughs> who's just coming out. <laughs> um, but I think it's like, I was a bit worried there, but it's the moment where he goes up to Dewey and he's just like standing against the wall and Timos comes up and just says, he's got to think about his whole life before he goes up on that stage, which is so true. Right. So many of these movies do that exact same thing. Not ironically. Right. And I, that was what I wrote down was, you know, this is a direct walk the line pole right there. <laughs> and then, and, and I was like, okay, how, how much of this is going to be walk the line? You get into that opening scene with him as a little boy and his brother going out because nothing bad could happen. We're young and, we're going to live forever. And I was just like, wow, they're laying it on thick here. There's no real subtlety in the, in this movie. And yet at the same time, that really works uh, up until the point that his little brother is, uh, comes down with a particularly bad case of being cut in two. <laughs> yes, he does. Yes. Which is so, because the thing is like, they build up so many of those jokes where it's just like, Oh, Hey, I'm going to grab a rattlesnake and throw it at Dewey. Oh, Hey, I'm going to like ride this horse unsafely. Also the game of chicken so, between the tractor and the horse. Yes, of course. Yes. Uh, like they, they build it up so well. And then they get to just like, okay, how could we actually have him die? That would be the most ridiculous. And it's like machete fight. <laughs> These two kids are going to have a goddamn machete fight. Right. 
and you know it's not going to go well. And you know, of course, as, as you you know, the the wrong kid died. Oh, you will find if you missed that, you will be aware. Thanks to Raymond J. Barry, who was another linchpin of this oh, movie. Oh yeah, and it's what's what's funny is it's like that that concept that thought is so nuanced in Robert Patrick's performance in Walk the Line. Mm-hmm. And yet here is just completely over the top and it, it works so well. Yes. Uh, so then we jump ahead to uh, Dewey as a 14 year old where he is suddenly being played by John C. Riley. <laughs> yes. Which of course is a spoof of like around this time we got, well, even, even before this, cause like this is especially spoofing like great balls of fire. Or you had right. Dennis Quaid doing a similar thing, where it's like super, super young, and it's like, oh, sure, like what at the time, thirty-five-year-old Dennis Quaid, sure, right, right. and him, his, his twelve-year-old girlfriend is played by uh, Kristen Wiig. Yes, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I love that—the idea that he's going to go ahead and leave home as a fourteen-year-old boy. What are you going to do? And he's going to take his twelve-year-old girlfriend, and they're going to go find their life together. But they're played by the adults. And I, what I also love is the fact that none of the other kids are played by adults. So it's the two of them awkwardly in with a bunch of kids. Yes. Uh, so he ends up being a fifteen-year-old with a wife and baby. <laughs> right, and but we get our first song with "Take My Hand," which I think a real credit to this movie is just the fact that all of the songs are this great combination where they're obviously like comedic spoofs of the different genres they're parodying but at the same time they almost act as 100% serious songs for the most part there's a couple that are quite clearly double entendres but like Let's take my it. hand feels like what are you talking about what's there's i think they're being really subtle about that right? I, I don't know <laughs> what you might be implying they're doing <laughs> what are they implying i have no idea yeah, the, the title song in particular, um, I, I actually got stuck in my head for a few days. It, it's very Johnny Cash sounding, and it's a little silly uh, towards the bridge, but otherwise it's actually a really nice country song. Hard, that's my creed, my code. I've been scorned and slandered and ridiculed too. Yes, which I mean, I would give credit to, like, it's the songwriters, there are several songwriters, but the main sort of music person behind this was Michael Andrews, who I found out, interestingly, is the guy who laid the piano track for the cover of Mad World That You Hear in Donnie Darko. Oh, really? Yes, which I think is almost, like, sells even more, because that song has become kind of like a comedic like thing to meme to point out about like oh this is such a self-serious song and that kind of self-seriousness almost really works even better for the music in this case because it being so self-serious makes the jokier lyrics or situations going on all the more hilarious (laughs) yeah i i really enjoyed the music um yeah so you get your first song in there you get but you also you have that parody again directly from walk the line which is one of my favorite scenes in walk the line is when he's in the recording studio and yes. they don't like the music that he's playing and he has to dig deep for that one song and I, I for me in walk the line i love that moment of him pulling that song up and the other band members slowly trying to figure out how to join in uh and and creating what i feel like is a really awesome moment and here they 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 go hard on that moment as well and what was it your, your my mother said she loved my music your mother was wrong <laughs> yes the record executive played by john michael higgins yes. in like 
this was also my introduction to him and he just so sells the stupid idea of just like they're really laying on thick that this guy doesn't think they're going to make it and she's like you have failed conclusively there is no way you can convince me right here in the studio that you are going to be anything of a musician and then they just perform i think like five seconds of walk hard and he's like not bad (laughs) right and and the other musicians join in after yeah yeah three four seconds and they're like full harmony and everything and it's yes. yeah i mean it's they 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 milk that moment and it was like man i liked that moment and walked the line but this is freaking hilarious well and, and even then like before that you have the scene with him and Kristen wig where they're arguing doing the classic like first wife and the musician fight each other and she says you can't there's no way the stream's gonna work it's like oh yeah but i have to walk i have to do it hard and then Walk. they zoom in as he has that look off into the distance. <laughs> this could be a song. <laughs> Which is another thing that even after this movie, so many movies still did. Like, um, one of the more egregious examples is, like, Clint Eastwood's Jersey Boys which did a really terrible version of this where they're like watching TV and like a woman gets hit on TV and they're like, hey, look at her, she's getting hit. Oh, is she gonna cry? Hey, big girls don't cry. And then they play Big Girls Don't Cry. Oh God! It's one of the worst fucking things I've ever seen. <laughs> I I also love that his song that they hate is a a terrible cover of uh, That's Amore. You mean the most amazing cover of that song? As an Italian man, I can tell you it is the most authentic, great version of that song. It's your like a big pizza pie. That's amore. Oh, hold on a second! I got a phone call. Oh, it's the Italians. They want your card back. Oh, again, I've had revoked so many times. Look, I like the Olive Garden breadsticks, guys. Leave me alone. Uh, they say you're not getting it back this time. Oh, no. <laughs> now I got, like, grease to, like, way back on. Oh, whatever. Some of the cameos that appear in here, um, the suits from the record company. The uh, man Again, no subtlety here. There are a bunch of Hasidic Jews. Mm-hmm. So instead of just saying the Jews are controlling the music company, they have actual Hasidic Jews. One of which, do you know who I'm talking about here, right? Well, I assume you would mean uh, Harold Ramis. Yes, Harold Ramis as one of the Hasidic Jews. Right, which is around the t- same time that he was playing um, Seth Rogen's father and knocked up. But I just love how he also commits fully to this bit, especially later on when we get the uh, I'm speaking in Yiddish so the guards don't know what I'm saying. Right, right. Well, and the the fact that the Jews' uh, names are uh, Laheim and Mazeltov, and then later Dreidel. Right, which of course it's Jake Kasdan and Judd Apatow who are very Jewish. Right. So they just like lean fully into it. It feels <laughs> once again this is where it gets to, like you can cl- tell the clear influence of like a Mel Brooks, very obviously here. At this point. Yeah. Uh, as you said, we get Frankie Muniz as uh, Buddy Holly when he finally gets to performing. You have Jack White. Uh, playing Elvis Presley, so we get a, another musician in there as well. Yes, um, some some really great little cameos there. And then he opens that wrong door. <laughs> and what's going <laughs> behind that door? Uh, you don't want no part of this shit. Yes, our uh, reoccurring gag as he opens the door, and behind it is uh, Tim Meadows' character with some form of drugs, usually making a comprehensive, coherent argument 
for why the drug is not bad by saying it's bad. Which, of course, the first time it's weed and he just lays down and he's like, well, I don't want a hangover. If you can't get a hangover, I don't want to OD on you can't OD on <laughs> Well, I don't want to get addicted. This is not habit forming. <laughs> <laughs> but he's still trying the entire time to convince him not to do it, which is the genius of it. He's like, right. do we know you don't want this at all, even though these are so many of the tantalizing things about it. Right, right. And then we get into the uh, the romantic tangle. So again, kind of one of those big elements from uh, Walk the Line. He he meets the other woman. In this case, I didn't even freaking recognize her at first. Really? Yeah. So Jenna Fisher, a very sexually charged Jenna Fisher, <laughs> uh, is the, the other woman here. And that's where we get into Let's Duet, which is uh, laced with double entendres, but still a brilliant song. In my dreams you're blowing me some kisses That's one of my favorite things to do You and I could go down in history That's what I'm praying to do with you Let's do it but uh, his love affair with with uh, that character is going to split away his wife, split up him and his wife, who threatens to leave him and, of course, take all the kids and everything. And he says, you can take the children, but you leave me my monkey. The best. <laughs> Such a great, <laughs> brilliant moment, because that's another example where Riley totally commits to this silly reality. Where it's just like, literally like everyone. By the way, I love how he enters that scene, too, with like a bad version of the Robert Patrick Tom Cruise run. Where he's right. got his arms going up. Hilarious once again. But then the, like he just commits fully, just like, oh no, my life's falling apart, but I want to keep the monkey. Who, within a couple scenes later, he curses off, which is another brilliant thing. Like, they got a monkey, a chimpanzee, mainly so John C. Riley could say, fuck you to it, and then leave the bus. <laughs> That's another thing. It's like, it's clearly more expensive than some of these other movies, because there's like, earlier they have a giraffe. And some other things like this is a very clearly like they put all the money on the screen kind of movie. So yeah. that's how much commitment they have to. It. It's just like we're going to go full on like, oh, how what's his excess? He has a giraffe. He has a monkey. <laughs> he buys like so much other just extravagant shit just to really sell it. And I love also how Kristen Wiig is pregnant in every scene that she's in. And usually holding twins or triplets from whatever previous birth she gave. Right. Who also John C. Riley like chews out at one point. She's like, I don't need you, especially you. You're just a baby. If anything, you need me. Yeah. Right. Think about it. <laughs> so you start the romance between uh, Dewey and Darlene, and I, I, I love their first uh, kiss or makeout session or whatever you want to call it, um, where they keep leaning towards each other and the other one pulls back and then vice versa. And I was like, oh my God, it's romantic comedies in a nutshell right here. Yes. You know, he, he wants her, she wants him. There used to be an old joke that in Act 1, he wanted her, but she wasn't ready. In Act 2, she wanted him, but he wasn't ready. In Act 3, they both wanted each other. But the censors weren't ready, and so you roll credit. Right. And the formula hasn't changed much since then. No. <laughs> uh, and, of course, the movie gets a little dark there. Uh, guilty as charged. <laughs> that was pa that was beginning Dewey. This is middle Dewey. Another great <laughs> Mad Besser line. Just and and even John C. Riley saying this is a dark fucking period. <laughs> there you go. That's, yeah, that's what I was going to get to. Is uh, yeah that uh, uh, yeah they, they again. There's no subtlety. They pointed out to you directly, but damn, it's a laugh. Yes. Uh, 
and and so he goes into a Bob Dylan esque phase. Uh, there was actually a, a wish that uh, he got an invite into the the Bob Dylan picture that was going on at the same time when they had the different actors playing different phases of Bob Dylan because his Dylan is pretty right. damn dead on. Um, and he's protesting whatever he can, protesting midgets. You got to think of other right. people like your family. No. <laughs> well yeah especially he's talking with jenna fisher about this is another great not at all subtle gag but but like that so points out the time it's, there's a bit where like he's talking about this just like i feel like i just need to do something important and jenna fisher says you're right the 60s are a very important time <laughs> like they have to fully sell it like no this like any biopic does all the time which is like anytime you see like 60s vietnam it's always the same exact thing that they're right doing in order to convey all of that and she's just literally spouting out this is important because it's a big time of protest well and i love when he gets into his um uh his 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 next phase kind of his brian wilson phase yes uh and there's the line about you know, the, from the producer saying this is not even a song it's a concerto and the first thing i thought of when he said that was oh didn't bohemian rhapsody have a similar line 10 years later it did yeah, yeah it did uh, and he goes a little crazy. I did not need to see uh, him in, in sumo underwear, by the way. Well, that's another great thing. Once again, just selling the ridiculousness is like he's having this like almost incredible Hulk style freak out on PCP. And Jenna Fisher picks this particular time, which is like, Dewey, I can't do this anymore. I'm leaving you. Meanwhile, he's on the roof saying, I'm Zeus. I'm the god of all. <laughs> he's on the roof of a fucking building. <laughs> I, I jumped over just to jump back for a second. You made the comment about the, the orgy scene. And, and I meant to bring up Roger Ebert actually in that same review that I read. He ends it saying, I must mention one peculiar element in the film. As Riley is having a telephone conversation, a male penis is framed in the upper right corner of the screen. No explanation about why or who it belongs to or what happens to it. Just a penis. I think this just about establishes a standard for gratuitous nudity. Speculate as I will, I cannot imagine why it's in the film. Did the cinematographer look through his viewfinder and say, Jake, the upper right corner could use a penis. <laughs> and there was actually an interview with them where they talked mm -hmm. about doing that scene and saying that they actually uh, edited. They just decided that that needed to be there, and they actually edited different cuts. They said cut almost 100 versions of it. Uh, as to how much that penis was there. And they actually had one sc screening where somebody finally was like, I don't need to see this. An entire row of people walked out. And they're like, okay, maybe that's a little too long, but we don't want to let people off the hook. Right, yeah, they, I've listened to the commentary and they display a lot of that. Um, and especially, like, it, it also kind of points out that, like, in these movies, they tend to do a lot of just, like, gratuitous female nudity anyway around this. And it almost feels like it's this counteraction, which is like, well, let's have gratuitous male nudity, which you don't often even get in these movies. And I think what really sells it, though, it's from being just a penis gag, is the bit where Dewey's dad comes in and you see the guy who has the that particular penis, his face, and he has this weird, bashful look, like, oh, it's Dewey's <laughs> dad <laughs> in the background of that scene. As he's getting into this rough point, as you said, the the whole Zeus and his wife leaves him. Uh, he starts to hallucinate or or not hallucinate. I don't know. He's having a conversation with the ghost of his uh, dead brother uh, who suddenly grows up and is played by Jonah Hill. <laughs> yes, which I love on the commentary. They talk about how they first screened it before Superbad came out and they initially just got like, oh, yeah, this is funny. This is funny. And then the moment he showed up in the screening right after Superbad came out, massive applause, which admittingly... He steals the show when he comes on as this ghost, especially just talking. Do like, I got no it, sense it, of having legs? <laughs> yes, <laughs> you thought I got no sense of smell. It's like, oh, can't smell anything. Can't, can't smell anything. 
It's just like, have you ever tried jerking off with a ghost hand? You can't even touch it. <laughs> uh, so yeah, and then the, the, the plot culminates in him finally having a machete fight with his dad. <laughs> right, which I love the, the, the setup of that as he comes into the farm, just like, you know what, dad, I need to really just like come term to term with you. It's like, well, son, I guess uh, we were always going to have this. And then just hands him a machete and they have the machete fight to settle right. everything. <laughs> Which is like, once again, it's another great moment. It's like in these biopics, there tends to be this scene of just like, oh, son, I forgive you. I'm I'm sorry. I did my, you know, how bad I was. And the son forgives him. And it's this big moment, especially usually they die on like a deathbed of some sort from some terrible disease. In this case, well, it's after he cuts himself in half. But he never realized until that moment how easy it is to accidentally cut someone in half. <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. And once again, like, so much credit. Like, he's the undersung hero of this movie, I think, is Raymond J. Barry as the dad, who every time, as you mentioned, keeps showing up and saying, the wrong kid died. Wrong kid died. He sings it at one point. Oh, yeah. Well, when, when, when Dewey Cox shows up for that, that scene where they, they, they do end up having the fight, that's he's doing chores, humming that under his breath about wrong kid died, wrong... Nobody's there to even hear him, and he's saying it. Right, especially because this is after the also amazing scene we kind of skipped over where his uh, mother, played by Margot Martindale, future TV hell? darling Margot Martindale. Yeah, I blew, that blew my mind when I saw her. But she's also, she once again, she's such a committed actor, she sells it. Like, early on, Dewey's just, like, randomly after his brother gets cut in half, Mama, I can't smell anything. You can't smell anything. She's, like, really smell gets blind. <laughs> But she's such a committed actress. She sells that, or even when she gets killed hilariously by losing her balance and then going over like, oh, I'm fine, and then a radio hits her head. Right. <laughs> uh, I also love in the machete fight that when they're, when they're lop, lopping at each other that the dad act, cuts a photo of the brother in two. Yes. <laughs> it's like, see, you did it too. It just was with a picture. So one of the famous scenes from Walk the Line is when uh, Cash, when... Joaquin Phoenix's cash has his breakdown. He goes into the bathroom and just starts smashing everything, and he rips the sink off of the wall, which actually was a mistake. The sink was not rigged to be pulled off the wall. Everything else right, in right. the room was easy to destroy, but somehow Phoenix managed to smash the one thing that wasn't intended that. And they, they bash it throughout. They, they come back to that moment. Uh, I love specifically when Dewey has his huge meltdown and he's trashing the Zen garden. He pulls out a jackhammer and starts going to town on the floor, <laughs> bending spoons. And then getting tired of bending the spoons after it dissolved, just like, oh my God, I have to keep doing this. Yeah. <laughs> like, just tired of his own bit. And I even love my favorite of those, like, they're, they're all very broad, almost Bugs Bunny esque bits, but him angrily using the hedge clippers to clip flowers, like, Ugh. Like, it's the most silly, petty, ridiculous bit that really gets me. And the one that involves, like, the least over-the-top elaborate. <laughs> so yeah. it's just like, he's really angry about these flowers. So he gets into recovery, and unfortunately, the, the bad side about him getting into recovery is they jump over the 80s. So much 80s opportunity with a musician like this, and they completely miss it. I mean, that's true uh, to, to a certain extent, but I think that all, that sells even more when he has, he's so out of touch and finds out what's happened to walk hard in the modern era, which right. is a, another great gag. But honestly, age is even better with time. It just looks <laughs> so much like a shitty 2007 era song that would have done this. And I got to give them credit. The old, uh, old makeup, on, especially on, on Riley, is really good. Yes, so that leads to him, as we said, uh, performing at an award show. 
uh, Lyle Lovett, Jewel, Jackson Brown doing a cover of his song with Ghostface Killer coming in and mashing it up a bit. And he also meets the Temptations, and you have Eddie Vedder there. And I was like, boy, I, I almost wish I was more of a music person to appreciate all of this. Well, if honestly, like at the time when I first watched, I didn't recognize most of them except for probably Ghostface Killer when this originally happened. But with time, that's another thing that, like, it's almost kind of like when you watch The Simpsons and they have a guest star pop up, and you're like, I don't know who that is. And then, like, as you get older, you like recognize, like, oh, that's who that person is. And you go back and watch, like, that particular episode, or in this case, the movie, and it only sells it even further. That's true. So he ends up uh, performing his final master masterpiece, which will sum up his entire life, <laughs> which is exactly how the song is introduced. And then, uh, boy, the, the last they, – they get every laugh they can in those last few minutes. He, he dies three minutes later. <laughs> right. And then the post-credits scene of the real Dewey Cox performing. Right, and in between there is a song that Dewey sings about, like, have you heard the news Dewey Cox died? <laughs> which right. is like him performing about his own death. But even, like, I really want to talk about, I think, as great as this whole entire track list is, my favorite song, honestly, is Beautiful Ride. Because I think that hits the right middle note of being a very silly song, obviously, about, like, all the culminating things and how you should um, spend time traveling, not just for business and all this other shit. Like, you just list them at a certain point. But it's also just, like, a genuinely surprisingly heartwarming song, despite that. I think a lot because of the instrumentation. And it's also compared perfectly with, like, it's, like, this montage of, like, oh, here's Dewey with this particular moment that's very sweet, followed by him and Chris Parnell doing, like, some kind of, like, bad uh, drug takedown, and him using Chris Parnell as a shield. Whoa! Like, the older version of Chris Parnell's performing on stage. <laughs> right. Uh, Chris Parnell just never ceases to amaze me with what he can pull off. I, I enjoyed him in this as well. I mean, especially there's a there's a great bit during like the Brian Wilson thing that you're talking about, where him, Matt Besser, and Tim Meadows are telling Dewey off, and they um, all of that was improvised, and it's a great example of how perfect they are at improvising, even down to Tim Meadows constantly just repeating the biggest grievance of "You never once paid for drugs, right? Not perfect. once, <laughs> not once." So yeah, I mean, as I said, when watching it, I, I mean, I definitely laughed quite a bit, but it was it was afterwards that I kind of really started to see the poignancy and it it did have an impact i mean i get what you were saying at the beginning i mean if you think about it we moved away from that more traditional um uh biopic narrative for over a decade i mean walk the line walk, walk hard came out in 2007 and then we didn't get to bohemian rhapsody until last year so it did step away for a while. I mean, I think it's just because you forgot some of like the other ones that came out in between. There are many forgettable ones that attempted a lot of the same things. I think like even like right after it was like Cadillac Records, a bunch of bullshit that like no one remembers. I think admittedly because this at least had the impact of I think critics stopped giving immense amount of praise. I think it was the impact of this film that they're not remembered because suddenly everybody went, wait a minute, we see what you're doing here. And they just made fun of it. Why are you doing it still? Well, at least critics did. I don't think audiences did, though, as a huge amount. I think that's the problem, honestly. It's just that audience members didn't really get that necessarily. So we still got, even like I mentioned at Jersey Boys, that didn't do terribly. That still was decently successful enough because it's admittingly based on a Broadway musical. But that's so much of the traditional biopic at the same time. I think you still had successful ones. I agree they weren't as at nauseum as they were in like the early 2000s. But then, even then, like when you know, you bring up like a Bohemian Rhapsody, people still flock to it without even batting an eye about how traditional it was. And I think it might be just be, you've admitted like that it's 
they weren't as popular in the last decade, but at the same time, the hope would have been that this movie would have been like airplane level as it deserves, I would argue, and mm-hmm. make sure this genre just doesn't get away with being so lazy. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I, I think it may be one of those. We'll have to see how more time treats it because mm-hmm. as, as you know, as we pointed out several times, it was not a box office success, but it's really found more acclaim in streaming and, and DVD and such. So who knows? It may have a longer lasting impact than, than we thought. I, I would hope so. I mean, to be fair, like it's been one that at least I like glob onto a lot of friends who like have similar interests, love this movie. I think it's, it's one of the few examples of like, honestly, a cult movie in the sort of like dying era of home video slash streaming, because so many movies get buried on streaming. It's like this one, I would argue like a, what we do in the shadows, are like two of the better examples of movies that managed to glob on in at least some minor pop culture in, inference to some degree. Well, and, and the next thing I look at is uh, the algorithm says, and that actually may be part of the problem here. So according to streaming services, these are the other movies that they pull up if you if you uh, watch Walk Hard. These are the other movies that it suggests, okay? Step Brothers. Right. Bad choice, right? I mean, in the algorithm way, it's just like, oh, John C. Riley, you like the Riley, don't you? Right. That's what they think, yeah. <laughs> um, hot Rod. Hot Rod, I would argue, fits more because it's going in a similar tone. Okay. Orange County. Same director, but very different movies, obviously. Talladega Nights, more again, Riley. Uh, yes. Anchorman. Not really sure, other than just chock full of comedic actors, kind of like this one is. Right, right, around the same era. Much more successful version of that same premise. 30 minutes or less. No. <laughs> it just, <laughs> I, I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. Oh, it's a hard no. <laughs> and I'm like, why is the algorithm even pulling this up? Holmes and Watson. Yeah, which that was the most depressing point where I really yeah. saw that like his comedic career just went to that particular low. It's really just like, you need to get away from your bad boyfriend, Will Ferrell, John C. Reilly. Right. <laughs> He's bad for you. Uh, the Rocker. Wow. They remember then, that? And then Mystery Men. Which I guess is because that's kind of a satire on superhero stuff. And right, I, guess, on, yeah. I, I guess that's all I can think of. <laughs> yeah. All right. To close out the show, uh, you got to go through the pop quiz. So got a couple questions here. See how you do gotcha. on it. Oh, all right. So number, number one, according to co-writer Jake Kasdan, the writing team of Mike Viola and Dan Byrne probably wrote how many songs or at least concept for songs over a period of several months? A, 10. B, 25, C, 50, or D, more than 100? I have the album, and I believe that it's 25. I'll go with that. No, they wrote more than 100 ideas or songs over a period <laughs> of several months. <laughs> right, 25 were the only ones that were recorded. Yeah, they, they actually told them they've got to be able to produce them at some point. They needed to slow down. <clears throat> right. Like, they spent eight months even just, like, recording those songs alone. Oh, yeah. And Riley heavily involved in all of it. Yes. All right. Number two, besides the obvious influences of Walk the Line and Ray, Apatow said they looked at a lot of other movies for inspiration. Which of the following movies was not an inspiration? A, Great Balls of Fire, B, Coal Miner's Daughter, C, Eight Mile, or D, Bird? Uh, I'll go with Eight Mile. That's correct. Eight Mile was not an influence on this movie. Shocking. (laughs) That's more of a scary movie three influencer. 
Right, right. <laughs> All right, uh, tough one here. John C. Riley shares a birthday with which musician who he directly parodies within Walk Hard? A. Johnny Cash. B. Bob Dylan. C. Brian Wilson. Or D. Roy Orbison. As someone who clearly knows all of these particular musicians and actors' birthdays, obviously. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'll go with Roy Orbison. Uh, no, uh, Bob Dylan. He and Bob Dylan share a birthday. Oh, all right. All right, and last question, number four. If Elvis and Buddy Holly are the Cain and Abel of rock and roll, Bruce Springsteen is Zachariah, Iggy Pop is Methuselah, and of course Neil Young is the wise prophet Ezekiel, then what does that make Dewey Cox? Am I getting multiple choice? I just forget. No, you just got to throw in an answer. It's an essay question. Oh, oh man. A short or long answer? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Thomas, thank you for introducing me to this movie. Uh, As I said, I had not seen it when things started, and I'm really glad I have now. I mean, given the title of the show, I wanted to go for something that I feel like a lot of people hadn't seen. I'm glad I could introduce it to you, a true cineast. (laughs) All right. Where can people find you? I am uh, at not the who's Tommy on Twitter and also Instagram. You can listen to me and my co-host Adam Thomas on Double Edge Double Bill, uh, which we're at D E D B Pod on Facebook and Twitter. And it's a podcast where every week we pick a random double feature of a good and a bad film. Uh, as we're recording this, we have an episode out about um, directorial debuts, where the good feature is Brick from Ryan Johnson, the bad one is uh, Piranha 2 The Spawning from James Cameron. And we're about to record a Sylvester Stallone episode where the good movie is Copland and the bad movie is Tango and Cash. And we're going to have um, Mr. Rafe Telsch on an upcoming episode as well about uh, another director, um, Kevin Smith. Uh, that'll be out maybe also at the time this is released. I'm looking forward to doing that one with you. I, I, it's funny. I'm a, I'm been listening to your podcast from the beginning. Uh, I'm usually about a week behind, so I don't always know uh you know what what order you've picked things in so like i'll have last week's episode that i'm listening to but this week's downloaded already so i see what the movies are and there was a period of a good month where i was like well which one's the bad one out of those two movies that that's interesting because <laughs> <laughs> in some cases it's pretty obvious to me um i did also want to plug um the website i write for which is true superhero fans uh dot com uh, which is a satire site about entertainment. Uh, I've, I've written recently uh, an, an article uh, at the time this is coming out. It'll be up. I'm currently working on it about uh, how Adam West is conveniently silent about the Robert Pattinson casting as Batman. Oh, dude, too soon. <laughs> it's been two years. <laughs> Adam would have loved that article. And you know it. All right, Thomas, thank you so much for joining me. It was lovely, Rafe. Always glad glad to see that you are back out there podcasting. Well, thank you. So, what do you think? Did you catch Walk Hard before this episode? Do you think it had an influence on the modern musical biopic? And just how brilliant is John C. Riley's singing voice? Let me know what you think. You can find me at Have Not Seen This on Twitter, or on Facebook at Have Not Seen This Podcast, or email me at Have Not Seen This at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, including next week's show, which looks at an animated film with an ecological message. This podcast is available on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify, or you can just use the RSS feed to subscribe through whatever podcatcher you prefer. Positive ratings and reviews are always welcome, although I'd appreciate it more if you just help spread the word and help me build up some listeners. Special thanks to Chris Talent for our wonderful theme song and to Thomas Mariani for providing this week's conversation. 
maybe you have a movie you'd like to talk about. One that means something to you or you're particularly astonished when you discover people have not seen. Come be a guest on the show. Head over to havenotseenthis.podbean.com, click the Be a Future Guest button, submit the form there, and I'll try to get you set up for a future episode. Until next week, I'm Rafe Telsch, and this has been Have Not Seen This. <laughs>